All right, so like she said, my name is Alex Isaacson, um, and I have taught a couple of other times up here, um, and I have really loved doing it. Um, and so for that reason, I know most of you, we've been doing Bible study, most of us, for a long time. And so I know most of you, but um, for those of you that don't know me, the first thing that you should know is that I have not used this before. <laughs> and I th- I'm going to try not to be distracted by it. I think it's better than like the other options, but... Yeah, I think it's really good, but I haven't used it before, so I'm going to try not to touch it. Um, So I am originally from Wisconsin, and I moved to Iowa City six years ago to go to medical school, and I am delighted to um, be staying here for residency and maybe maybe longer, who knows? But I adore Iowa City. Um, I've loved being part of Veritas Church since I got here. Um, And like Rebecca said, I actually was, was involved in the writing of this study, And um, this fall, Rebecca asked me to work on this with her. And I, of course, jumped at the chance to do this for two reasons. The first being any time, as you guys know, that you get the chance to work with Rebecca Johnson. It is a delight and a privilege. Um, And we are just really fortunate to have her leadership and vision. I, I don't know if you guys have caught on to that or realized that, but we are just really privileged to have her with us. Um, And so the second reason is that I believe that, where's my prop? Okay, I believe that this book um, was not just given to our pastors and it wasn't given to our husbands or like the men in the church and it wasn't just given to our favorite bloggers or to people who are on staff at a church. I really believe that this book was given to you and it was given to me. And for that reason, um, it's a book about God, it's by God, by the hands and voices of inspired people. And for that reason, um, I really love that you are here to know it um, with me. And um, at some level, I think that you must believe that too because you continue to show up and you continue to study. And like Rebecca said, we're halfway through. Um, but I just wanna encourage you to keep going. You're doing a good job and a good thing by studying this and you're going to see fruit because of it. Um, the other caveat that I should throw out there is that I know that Rebecca said to study day one really, really hard this week because we were going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Rebecca's going to talk, maybe talk about it. So that will, that will bear fruit, but, um, sorry, just wanted to throw that out there. So, okay. So last week we talked about chapter one, we finished chapter one and Jonah, this prophet to Israel, during a very prosperous time um, in Israel's career, has just been told by God that he needs to go preach a message of repentance and mercy to Israel's enemies, the Ninevites, who were essentially the most evil city on the planet at this point. And Jonah, doing what most of us, at least me, probably would have done, says no way and runs away. And God pursued him with this terrible storm that we talked about last week. And the only reason that the storm ended was because... um, Jonah says to the other people on the boat, like, this is about, this is about me, like, throw me in. And the sailors did, and we saw that actually the storm became a means of repentance um, for the sailors, and they came to worship and believe in the Lord when they saw that the way the storm had calmed after Jonah was thrown in. And so tonight we pick up with Jonah as he hits the waters of the Mediterranean, and it would seem that this part of Jonah needs no explanation, right? Because if you were like me, you showed up to this study knowing one thing about Jonah, and that was a fish. He gets swallowed by a fish, right? Okay, so raise your hand if, honestly, if your first 
or your main exposure to Jonah was the VeggieTales movie. Yeah, okay, that is like not as many people as I thought, but <laughs> okay, so this is a confession. I did not grow up watching VeggieTales, so I had not seen the VeggieTales movie, but conveniently YouTube put the entire Jonah VeggieTales movie online like two months ago. And so as part of preparing for this talk, in addition to reading like commentaries or things, I actually watched the Jonah VeggieTales movie because a lot of us were like theologically influenced by the VeggieTales. And now I've been singing, we are the pirates who can't do anything or who don't do anything, right? All week. And it's interesting because like this part of the story is so unbelievable that it seems like we've reserved it for children's ministry, right? Because that's the only way a man could get swallowed by a fish or a whale or whatever. It was in children's ministry, right? And as someone that has studied biology and chemistry and physiology for most of my adult life, I can accept the fact that being swallowed by a fish is like pretty far out, right? But interestingly, like, why does this surprise us so much? You know, like, we've already seen God demonstrate power over his creation, right? Like, he created a terrifying storm, and then he just stopped it in an instant. And if you read the entire end of the book of Jonah, which we asked you to do at least twice so far, haven't we seen how God has exerted his power to make huge plants grow up overnight and hot winds blow? So I think the big idea for me this week is that the most unbelievable part of the story of Jonah is not that God chooses to save him by the belly of a fish. The most incredible part of this story is that God saves him by changing his heart. And so we'll pick up in chapter two with Jonah praying from the belly of a fish. And he's giving kind of this recap, right, of what's happened to him. And um, did anyone notice that this section sounds a little bit different than the rest of the book? Like the rest of the book moves a little bit more in a kind of a linear timeline, right? Like a narrative. But this section sounds more like, like a song or like a psalm even. Um, and interestingly, like if you would look into the Psalms, a lot of what Jonah is saying is actually repeated in the Psalms or maybe Jonah himself was copying from the Psalms. Um, and so even though this isn't moving in a perfect linear timeline, we still get all of the main events of what happened to Jonah. So let's start in verse two. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So if you're a, a point taker or a note taker, um, I think the first point that we see from Jonah too is that um, in Jonah's rescue, God himself cast Jonah into the sea. So last week, we're talking about how the raging seas and the storm are symbolic of God's wrath, right? Against Jonah's sin and how the waters of God's wrath required a sacrifice and no human effort, no matter how hard the sailors rode, they weren't gonna stop that storm. But we have an advantage over Jonah in this sense, right? In that Jonah is in the water when the storm quiets. But we get to see it kind of from the, up, the upper view that the storm does quiet when Jonah gets thrown in. Yet, Jonah is able to acknowledge to God, like, you cast me here. There is a reason for this. So why does this matter that Jonah 
credits or blames God for casting him into the sea rather than the sailors. We, we talked about this, right, in, the, in our discussion in the homework this week, but if Jonah puts all the responsibility on the sailors, he has full license to place blame for his entire situation on them, right? They would be the guilty ones. He would be free from blame. And we all know that this is not true, right, about the story of Jonah. But then later we see him say in verse four, I am driven from your sight. And we looked back this week in Genesis and we saw how this is the same phrase that was used to describe Adam and Eve when they were cast out of the Garden of Eden as a result of their sin. So by Jonah using this phrase, it's almost as if he's acknowledging that because of his disobedience, he deserves to be at the bottom of the sea when he's faced with a just and holy God. But it would be easy to play the victim, right, in this situation. It would be easy to try to place the blame on someone else. And I was thinking about what I always think about <laughs> when, I, when these situations come up, and I was thinking about, like, so did anybody, who played a sport, like in high school or, in, or middle school or whatever? Okay, so pick your sport. For me, it was golf and softball whatever, maybe you watch sports, I don't know. So when your team is doing great, what are you guys on the sidelines saying? We're the best, whatever, your rally cheer. When your team starts to lose, what do you say? The umpire, it's the umpire's fault, right? Clearly they're not making the calls for us. Or like I said, like golf is my sport. So you hit a bad shot, the shot goes in the sand, like, did you see that wind? Did you hear that guy talking in my backswing? Like, did you hear that? We don't wanna take responsibility for the fact that like maybe we're just not that good <laughs> or maybe we just didn't measure up this time. I think this is the one part of the story thus far where I actually want to behave like Jonah. Take a look at my surroundings and take a look at my life and say, this is my fault and God has cast me here. And before we go any further with this, I do want to be clear, I am not saying that every single bad thing that has ever happened in our lives is because of some specific sin that we committed. Cancer happens, loss happens. We live in a broken world, bad things happen that we did not personally invite. But I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we invite a lot of chaos when we walk in the opposite direction of what God has called us to. Is it also possible that in addition to being an act of divine wrath, that God casting Jonah into the sea was also an act of divine love? So how was Jonah's relationship with God before when he was back home preaching the good news, everyone loved him and he was the king's right-hand man. And then God asks him to do one hard thing and Jonah takes off running in the opposite direction. That doesn't sound to me like a relationship that's built on love and reverence and trust, right? Would a loving God, would a truly loving father allow his child to continue living in separation like that? In, in an unreal relationship, if it was your kid or your spouse or your best friend and they were continuing to walk on a path that was going to distance them from you, would you wouldn't you do anything to bring them back to you, even if that meant allowing them to kind of meet the end of their destruction before they would turn around? For the times 
that sin and hardship and the inadequacy in my life has confronted me and like Rebecca quoted last week, thrown me against the rock of ages. I think we can say, praise God, hallelujah for those. The second thing that I think we see in Jonah's prayer is that God pours out tremendous grace in response to a tiny seed of faith. So we see again in verse two that he calls out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. In verse four, then I said, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So he's talking about death here, right? Like the gates of, of death, essentially. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. So this is actually really descriptive, right? Like we can visualize Jonah sinking again, like down, 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 right? He's as farther down to go. He's got to hit rock bottom in the Mediterranean Sea first. And he's literally at death's door, but he makes this odd statement, right? Like, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. So where was the temple and why would Jonah want to gaze upon it? Well, we looked in 1 Kings, right, this week and we saw that the temple was the place where God's name dwelt. It wasn't where his actual presence was contained, but it was where his name dwelt with his people. And so for this reason, it was a really important place of worship and sacrifice for the Jews. But the temple is like back in Jerusalem, right? It's back in Israel. And Jonah is dying at the bottom of the sea. So how can he say, I will see the temple again. I think that finally at the point of desperation, we see a glimmer of faith inside this prophet, right? Hebrews 11 defines actually faith for us. And it says it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith would say, my situation is impossible, but God. My sin is too great, yet God. Faith says he is under no obligation to save me, but I know that he can. And how does God respond to this cry from his prophet? We see two things, I think. Um, the first is that he hears his voice. So what? Well, because remember, what did Jonah believe about God? That God was back in Israel, right? He could run from God's presence, but it seems now that Jonah has realized that Jonah or that God is everywhere. The word for this, the like theological word for this is omnipresence, it's God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere. From the temple to the depth of the sea and to the belly of a fish, we cannot outrun God. And because of that, no prayer escapes his ear. The second thing that I think we can see here is that in response to Jonah's last breath of faith, God provides a means of salvation the mouth of a fish to swallow him up and save him from what was essentially certain death, right? So this week in the homework, we pondered the question, was the fish a means of God's wrath or of God's grace? You would think that a stinky, acidic, crowded belly of a fish at first glance is not the picture of grace as I imagined. Like if you walked up to someone on the street tomorrow and said, hey, um, God loves you so much, he's gonna swallow you with a fish, right? Like that's not exact, those things don't seem congruent. But I think it's because we desperately want grace to seem warm and comfortable and without hardship. But if we ask Jonah, 
I think he would say that this fish was an incredible miracle of grace appointed by God when his other option was death. So some of you might be asking, and I actually was wondering too, like, why did it have to be a fish? Like when Jonah kind of met his bottom of the sea and was like, please save me, why didn't God just throw him back up in the boat? Why didn't he just throw him up on the shore? And I think the answer lies in what Rebecca talked about last week, that Jonah was buried in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Who else do we know that was buried for three days and three nights? Jesus, right? It's, it's, a, good, it's a good Bible study tip, right? That like, we've heard these things before. We, these things get repeated over and over. God uses the same signs and the same words over and over. And I think that what God is showing us here is the parallel that the beauty of the resurrection is only possible because of the period of death in the grave. So what are the areas in your life where grace is arriving in a form that is unexpected? Maybe for you, it's the form of a friend or a family member who is prodding an area of sin in your life and you, you don't wanna listen, you don't wanna deal with that right now. Or maybe for you, it's a physical disease or an emotional burden and it is too heavy to carry. For me, and I'm guessing many of you can relate to this, this looks like continued prayers over months and years that seemingly go unanswered on my timeline. But if these tough situations allow us to better learn the extent of God's providence for us, they are grace. They are unmerited favor from God. And in the belly of that fish, we are safe. And because of the grace given to us through the resurrection of Christ, that death is always followed by life. So I think the third thing that we see in Jonah's prayer is that the proper response to this unbelievable grace of God is obedience. Verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. So it was kind of tough for me to know who Jonah is addressing here in regards to the vain idols. I think, it, I think it could be any number of things. You know, is he, is he talking about the sailors who when he left them, they were calling out to their false gods, right? Without response. Or is he talking about the Ninevites that he's been called to preach to who are bowing down to idols of evil and violence? Or is he talking about himself? Is he talking about his idol of religion and nationalism that he had been serving prior to being in the fish. I think in any case, we see that Jonah's response to his rescue is a resolve to serve the Lord in the same manner that conveniently the sailors are doing, right? Hundreds of feet above him in the water, they're responding to God's grace with thanksgiving and sacrifice as Jonah resolves to do. And we see that he has said, what I have vowed, I will pay. He is ready to say yes and be obedient to God. So I think what we can apply from this is to ask ourselves, what are we being called to do where it's time to say yes to God? You know, in his case, in Jonah's case, he was being called to confront these false beliefs about the extent of God's mercy, right? Leaving behind his racism and his nationalism and his religiosity. 
And maybe you identify this. You know, I was thinking about this. It's not um, unrealistic to think that those things live in our hearts too because certainly we see that those things are as prevalent in our world today, if not more so than they were in Jonah's time. And sadly, even within our churches, right? Maybe for you, you have a person to forgive or someone to apologize to. For me, it looks like standing up here and telling all of you what I think about this book, right? Um, Whatever it looks like for you, the proper response to God's grace is obedience. We see Jonah end his prayer with this bold statement, right? This thesis statement of the book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we're like, yes, that's right. Like from repentance to rescue, we've seen Jonah's entire story was really orchestrated by God's hand. And we're like, right on. But actually that's not what I said. (laughs) And that's not what any of the girls in my small group were saying either. I actually cringe when I read this chapter. Because if we've been reading through the book and you've gotten to chapter four, you know that Jonah throws like an adult sized temper tantrum in front of the Lord. And we are disgusted with him by the end of the book. It makes him look like a hypocrite. And is there anything that we despise worse than a hypocrite in the church? This chapter, like Rebecca said, has been the hardest to study and has haunted me for weeks because I could not understand how this could happen. Like if Jonah was really repentant, why would he go on to withhold mercy from his enemies? Was he just paying God lip service in the belly of the whale? And even worse, like was God fooled by him? Verse 10 tells us that After Jonah had spent three days praying in the belly of the fish, the Lord spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Jonah up out onto dry land. Now, I read like seven translations of this verse and every single one used the word vomited. And I don't think that you need to have a medical degree to agree that the word vomited does not have pleasant associations, right? It's almost as if the author, who we presume to be Jonah, is trying to convey that God knew that although there had been some level of change in his heart, there was many, many layers of sin to be dealt with before the end. But That's the beauty of this story, friends. Like Jonah does not need to be our hero in this story because he's not. God is the hero of this story. And by his mercy, he plays the long game and he looks for the big picture and he saves and uses imperfect people to accomplish his plans. He continues to put us through the fires of repentance and rescue because through that we emerge at the end refined like gold. So he did with Jonah and so he will with us. And then we can say salvation in its entirety belongs to the Lord. Will you pray with me?